Chapter 12 of The Gilded Age. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aaron Waters. The Gilded Age by Mark Twain and Charles Dudley Warner. Chapter 12. Oh, it's easy enough to make a fortune, Henry said. It seems to be easier than it is, I begin to think, replied Philip. Well, why don't you go into something? You'll never dig it out of the Astor Library. If there be any place and time in the world where and when it seems easy to go into something, it is in Broadway on a spring morning, when one is walking cityward, and has before him the long lines of palace shops, with an occasional spire seen through the soft haze that lies over the lower town, and hears the roar and hum of its multitudinous traffic. To the young American, here or elsewhere, the paths to fortune are innumerable, and all open. There is invitation in the air, and success in all his wide horizon. He is embarrassed which to choose, and is not unlikely to waste years in dallying with his chances before giving himself to the serious tug-and-strain of a single object. He has no traditions to bind him or guide him, and his impulse is to break away from the occupation his father has followed, and make a new way for himself. Philip Sterling used to say that if he should seriously set himself for ten years to any one of the dozen projects that were in his brain, he felt that he could be a rich man. He wanted to be rich. He had a sincere desire for a fortune, but for some unaccountable reason he hesitated about addressing himself to the narrow work of getting it. He never walked Broadway, a part of its tide of abundant shifting life, without feeling something of the flesh of wealth, and unconsciously taking the elastic step of one well-to-do in this prosperous world. Especially at night in the crowded theatre, Philip was too young to remember the old chamber's street box where the serious burden led his hilarious and pagan crew. In the intervals of the screaming comedy, when the orchestra scraped and grunted and tooted its dissolute tunes, the world seemed full of opportunities to Philip, and his heart exulted with a conscious ability to take any of its prizes he chose to pluck. Perhaps it was the swimming ease of the acting on the stage where virtue had its reward in three easy acts. Perhaps it was the excessive light of the house, or the music, or the buzz of the excited talk between acts. Perhaps it was youth, which believed everything. But for some reason, while Philip was at the theater, he had the utmost confidence in life and his ready victory in it. Delightful illusion of paint and tinsel and silk attire, of cheap sentiment and high and mighty dialogue. Will there not always be Rosen enough for the squeaking fiddle-bow? Do we not all like the maudlin hero, who is sneaking round the right entrance, and wait to steal the pretty wife of his rich and tyrannical neighbor from the pasteboard cottage of the left entrance? And when he advances down to the footlights, and defiantly informs the audience that, he who lays his hand on a woman except in the way of kindness, do we not all applaud, so as to drown the rest of the sentence? Philip never was fortunate enough to hear what would become of a man who should lay his hand on a woman 
with the exception named, but he learned afterwards that the woman who lays her hand on a man, without any exception whatsoever, is always acquitted by the jury. The fact was, though Philip Sterling did not know it, that he wanted several other things quite as much as he wanted wealth. The modest fellow would have liked fame thrust upon him for some worthy achievement. It might be for a book, or for the skillful management of some great newspaper, or for some daring expedition like that of Lieutenant Strain or Dr. Kane. He was unable to decide exactly what it should be. Sometimes he thought he would like to stand in a conspicuous pulpit and humbly preach the gospel of repentance, and it even crossed his mind that it would be noble to give himself to a missionary life to some benighted region where the date palm grows and the nightingale's voice is in tune and the bulbul sings on the off nights. If he were good enough, he would attach himself to that company of young men in the theological seminary were seeing New York life in preparation for the ministry. Philip was a New England boy and had graduated at Yale. He had not carried off with him all the learnings of that venerable institution, but he knew some things that were not in the regular course of study. A very good use of the English language and considerable knowledge of its literature was one of them. He could sing a song very well, not in tune to be sure, but with enthusiasm. He could make a magnetic speech at a moment's notice in the classroom, the debating society, or upon any fence or dry goods box that was convenient. He could lift himself by one arm and do the giant swing in the gymnasium. He could strike out from his left shoulder. He could handle an oar like a professional and pull stroke in a winning race. Philip had a good appetite, a sunny temper, and a clear, hearty laugh. He had brown hair, hazel eyes set wide apart a broad but not high forehead, and a fresh, winning face. He was six feet high, with broad shoulders, long legs, and a swinging gait, one of those loose-jointed, capable fellows who saunter into the world with a free air and usually make a stir in whatever company they enter. After he left college, Philip took the advice of friends and read law. Law seemed to him well enough as a science but he never could discover a practical case where it appeared to him worth while to go to law, and all the clients who stopped with this new clerk in the ante-room of the law office where he was writing, Philip invariably advised to settle, no matter how, but settle, greatly to the disgust of his employer, who knew that justice between man and man could only be attained by the recognized processes with the attendant fees. Besides, Philip hated the copying of pleadings, and he was certain that a life of whereases and aforesaids, and whipping the devil round the stump, would be intolerable. Note, these few paragraphs are nearly an autobiography of the life of Charles Dudley Warner, whose contributions to the story start here with chapter 12, D.W. His pen, therefore, and whereas, and not as aforesaid, strayed off into other scribblings, in an unfortunate hour, he had two or three papers accepted by first-class magazines, at three dollars the printed page, and, behold, his vocation was open to him. He would make his mark in literature. Life has no moment so sweet as that in which a young man believes himself called into the immortal ranks of the masters of literature.
It is such a noble ambition that it is a pity it has usually such a shallow foundation. At the time of this history, Philip had gone to New York for a career. With his talent, he thought he should have little difficulty in getting an editorial position upon a metropolitan newspaper. Not that he knew anything about newspaper work, or had the least idea of journalism. He knew he was not fitted for the technicalities of the subordinate departments, but he could write leaders with perfect ease, he was sure. The drudgery of the newspaper office was too distasteful, and besides, it would be beneath the dignity of a graduate and a successful magazine writer. He wanted to begin at the top of the ladder. To his surprise, he found that every situation in the editorial department of the journals was full, always had been full, was likely always to be full. It seemed to him that the newspaper managers didn't want genius, but mere plodding and grubbing. Philip, therefore, read diligently in the Astor Library, planned literary works that should compel attention, and nursed his genius. He had no friend wise enough to tell him to step into the Dorking Convention, then in session, make a sketch of the men and women on the platform, and take it to the editor of the Daily Grapevine, and see what he could get a line for it. One day he had an offer from some country friends who believed in him to take charge of a provincial daily newspaper, and he went to consult Mr. Gringo, Gringo, who years ago managed the Atlas, about taking the situation. Take it, of course, says Gringo. Take anything that offers. Why not? But they want me to make it an opposition paper. Well, make it that. That party is going to succeed. It's going to elect the next president. I don't believe it, said Philip stoutly. It's wrong in principle, and it ought not to succeed. But I don't see how I could go for a thing I don't believe in. Oh, very well, said Gringo, turning away with a shade of contempt. You'll find, if you are going into literature and newspaper work, that you can't afford a conscience like that. But Philip did afford it, and he wrote, thanking his friends, and declining because he said the political scheme would fail, and ought to fail. And he went back to his books and to his waiting for an opening large enough for his dignified entrance into the literary world. It was in this time of rather impatient waiting that Philip was one morning walking down Broadway with Henry Brearley. He frequently accompanied Henry part way downtown to what the latter called his office in Broad Street, to which he went, or pretended to go, with regularity every day. It was evident to the most casual acquaintance that he was a man of affairs, and that his time was engrossed in the largest sort of operations, about which there was a mysterious air. His liability to be suddenly summoned to Washington, or Boston, or Montreal, or even to Liverpool, was always imminent. He never was so summoned, but none of his acquaintances would have been surprised to hear any day that he had gone to Panama or Peoria, or to hear from him that he had bought the Bank of Commerce. The two were intimate at that time, they had been classmates, and saw a great deal of each other. Indeed, they lived together in Ninth Street, in a boarding house, there which had the honor of lodging and partially feeding several other young fellows of like kidney, who have since gone their several ways into fame or into obscurity. It was during the morning walk to which reference has been made that Henry Brearley suddenly said, Philip, how would you like to go to St. Joe? I think I should 
like it, of all things, replied Philip with some hesitation. But what for? Oh, it's a big operation. We are going, a lot of us, railroad men, engineers, contractors. You know, my uncle is a great railroad man. I've no doubt I could get you a chance to go, if you'll go. But in what capacity would I go? Well, I'm going as an engineer. You could go as one. I don't know an engine from a coal cart. Field engineer, civil engineer, you can begin by carrying a rod and putting down the figures. It's easy enough. I'll show you about that. We'll get trot wine in some of those books. Yes, but what is it for? What is it all about? Why don't you see? We lay out a line, spot a good land, enter it up, know where the stations are to be, spot them, buy lots. There's heaps of money in it. We wouldn't engineer long. When do you go? was Philip's next question, after some moments of silence. Tomorrow. Is that too soon? No, it's not too soon. I've been ready to go anywhere for six months. The fact is, Henry, that I'm about tired of trying to force myself into things, and am quite willing to try floating with the stream for a while, and see where I will land. This seems like a provincial calling. It's sudden enough. The two young men who were by this time full of the adventure, went down to the Wall Street office of Henry's uncle and had a talk with that wily operator. The uncle knew Philip very well and was pleased with his frank enthusiasm and willing enough to give him a trial in the Western venture. It was settled, therefore, in the prompt way in which things are settled in New York, that they would start with the rest of the company next morning for the West. On the way uptown, these adventurers bought books on engineering and suits of India rubber, which they supposed they would need in a new and probably damp country, and many other things which nobody ever needed anywhere. The night was spent in packing up and writing letters, for Philip would not take such an important step without informing his friends. If they disapproved, thought he, I've done my duty by letting them know. Happy youth that is ready to pack its valise and start for Cathay on an hour's notice. By the way, calls out Philip from his bedroom to Henry, where is St. Joe? Why, it's in Missouri somewhere, on the frontier, I think. We'll get a map. Never mind the map. We will find the place itself. I was afraid it was nearer home. Philip wrote a long letter, first of all, to his mother, full of love and glowing anticipations of his new opening. He wouldn't bother her with business details but he hoped that the day was not far off when she would see him return with a moderate fortune and something to add to the comfort of her advancing years. To his uncle he said that he had made an arrangement with some New York capitalists to go to Missouri in a land and railroad operation, which would at least give him a knowledge of the world and not unlikely offer him a business opening. He knew his uncle would be glad to hear that he had at last turned his thoughts to a practical matter. It was to Ruth Bolton that Philip wrote last. He might never see her again. He went to seek his fortune. He well knew the perils of the frontier, the savage state of society, the lurking Indians, and the dangers of fever. But there was no real danger to a person who took care of himself. Might he write to her often and tell her of his life? If he returned with a fortune, perhaps and perhaps. If he was unsuccessful, or if he never returned, perhaps it would be as well. 
No time or distance, however, would ever lessen his interest in her. He would say good night, but not goodbye. In the soft beginning of a spring morning, long before New York had breakfasted, while yet the air of expectation hung about the wharves of the metropolis, our young adventurers made their way to the Jersey City Railway Station of the Erie Road to begin the long, swinging, crooked journey over what a rider of a former day called a causeway of cracked rails and cows to the west. End of chapter 12 Recording by Aaron Waters in Denton, Texas.